the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Tonight, we're going to be talking to Matt Dolan, candidate for United States Senate here in Ohio. And uh, we're going to be talking about the current issues and how his campaign is going. Matt, thank you for joining us. Good evening, Nick. Thanks for having me. Uh, boy, there, there's no quiet time in government, uh, so there's a lot to talk about. But let's first talk about your campaign. How are things going for you? Well, thanks, Nick. Uh, things are going great. Um, I'm in the race for the United States Senate for, to win the Republican primary. And as you know, in our previous conversation, you know, I, I didn't spend time in the spring uh, on the campaign uh, because I was actually doing the state budget, which you and I have had good conversations about. I came out of the budget in June, and I looked around, and I went on a listening tour. And, you know, I knew that Ohio Republicans, you know, wanted to talk about the economy, wanted to hear about how we're going to fix uh, what's happening in our country now, uh, how we're going to get jobs back, how we're going to curb inflation. And they want to hear about security. They want to talk about the border. They want to make sure that we're funding the police. And these are all things that not only I, I, I'm talking about in the campaign that is unique to me, but I'm the only one in the race that's actually done anything about any of those. So we feel comfortable. Uh, we, uh, we are going to peak at the right time and uh, look forward to carrying the Republican banner into November and uh, winning in November and leading in uh, Washington in January. Well, with all these, uh, these issues going on, first off, I, I think people need to realize they're seeing all of these commercials from Republican uh, candidates for United States Senate. And the, it seems that the uh, commercials are pointed toward Republicans. Uh, are, are there other people who are listening to the commercials that you think will have an impact other than Republicans who will be voting in the Republican primary? Yeah, I don't know how many will. I mean, in a Republican primary, you want to make sure your message uh, resonates uh, amongst your fellow party members. But I think what's unique to me is I am actually talking about issues that impact all Ohioans. And my take, Nick, is that when Republicans are in charge and Republican ideas are put in place, uh, we're better off. We're safer. Uh, our economies are stronger. Our standing in the world uh, is better. The problem is, as Republicans, we don't always execute on our ideas. Uh, and so when I talk about China, we need somebody that's actually going to go to Washington and engage with the administration to make sure they are strong with China, that they are calling them out for intellectual property theft, that we are creating new economic allies with India, with Indonesia, with the Philippines, you know, to make sure that we are economically competitive to China. Uh, because if we just tariff our way out of it, they subsidize everything. So tariffs only hurt us. Tariffs are taxes on Americans. You start creating new economic allies in their region, uh, they, they have to start paying attention. They're going to start looking inward. You know, another area, if, if I may, Nick, is sure. you know, where we don't execute is the border. I'm running an ad right now on on 
the amount of fentanyl that's coming into our state. So the board, the, the open borders is an Ohio issue. And, and I don't know how anyone can say it's not. When you go around and talk to the sheriffs and the police chiefs and the, and the, um, uh, anyone in law enforcement, the amount of overdoses and drug sales that's occurring in Ohio, uh, this past year is, is record breaking. Unfortunately, 76% of overdose deaths in Ohio were fentanyl deaths. That compares to 58 just a few years ago. That's still too high, but Nick, what's changed? What's changed is a relentless focus on securing our border. The Biden administration has an open border. It's killing people in Ohio. The problem is when Republicans were in charge, we had the White House, we had the House, we had the Senate. President Trump put an immigration plan forward that was working, and we spent all our time fighting amongst ourselves. We need to send people to Washington who aren't just talkers, but are actually doers, actually want to engage and get things done and bring Republican ideas to fruition so that we are safer and our economy is stronger. And I think that's what people want. I think the Republicans and all Ohioans want someone who's willing to go and get the work done. And I'm unique in this race. I'm the only one that can point to think conservative results that I brought to Ohio, I want to bring those to Washington. Well, when uh, you get to the Senate, the United States Senate, and you're working in Congress, uh, down down the road you have the White House and you have the administration. Uh, what can you do and what can anyone do as a U.S. senator to affect and influence things such as the economy and, and border control and to close our borders the way they should be, the way they have been many years ago? Well, you've got to be relentless uh, in the uh, in pursuing your idea. So, uh, you know, I hope to go to Washington with a Republican majority. So, uh, but in the Senate, that's not enough. You need 60 votes. So you have put a plan together that secures our border, that that continues the wall. It adds new technology. It adds more border patrol. All the things that we were doing in the Trump administration that was securing our border. It wasn't closing our border. It was securing our border. So we knew who was coming into our country and we knew what they were bringing into our country. Then you just have to be relentless. You go to the White House. You know, hopefully it's just two more years we have to deal with the Biden administration. But you let them know this is what Republicans want. And you also have to bring five or six Democrats. So as long as they don't undermine the principles of the bill, and that is secure our border. Then you can you know you work together. You work hard, but you work together. And if Biden is not going to buy it, then when we're running in 24 for the White House, we're running on ideas. We're running on Republicans saying we want to close the border. Here's a plan put forth by Senator Dolan in the in the Republican majority, and the Democrats aren't buying into it. Give us the White House, and these are the things we can put into place to secure our border. The economy is the same way. You know, you control government spending. You do a budget so taxpayers know where their dollars are spent. Republicans and Democrats haven't done a, a, a federal budget in years. Uh, and, and as a result of that, we as constituents have no idea where our money is being spent. I guarantee you, you do a budget and you expose it to everyone as to where our money is going, like I've done in the state three times, you'll start seeing government spending go down because the efficiency we will we'll focus on the efficiencies and get rid of the weight. You know, we, we talked a few moments ago about the fact that 
the campaigns of all the Republican uh, Senate candidates are all pointed toward the primary election, the Republican primary election coming up in May. Um, assuming you're in the election in November against a Democratic candidate, uh, how do you think your message might change to target more of the, the, the middle-of-the-road voters who are neither Republican or Democrat? So that's a great question, Nick, because uh, of all the people, my message won't change very much at all um, because a strong economy, getting people back to work, not having a government uh, pay for you to stay home, uh, making sure we have workforce development, making sure kids have avenues to skilled labor and skilled manufacturing, uh, controlling government spending. These are things that Ohioans want. Uh, fighting for Ohio wh- where where we can and make sure that we have more wins like we had here recently with Intel coming mm-hmm. in. You know, I worked on legislation that helped, you know, I was part of the process to help bring that here. I will continue to do that. So that's going to be resonating with people. You know, this this primary now has become uh, a race for some. My opponents are all trying to get former President Trump's endorsement. And that politically may be the right thing. But I'm telling you, I'm focused on the things that President Trump did as president. And lowering your taxes, reducing regulations, these are all things I did in Ohio. So it's what we want as a Republican when we're in charge that actually impacts all Ohioans in a much better way. And I'm the messenger who can deliver that. Also, let's face facts. I'm the only one that's been on the ballot with Trump running at the same time. And I've outperformed the president twice, meaning I got all the people who voted for Trump plus 11,000 more people. You know, that's, as you say, when you go into the general election, it's a lot of the independent voters who are going to decide the outcome of this race. Now, they have to be attracted to to a candidate, who otherwise they're they're not out there campaigning every day for. You, uh, we have about a minute before our, our, our first break here. You mentioned 60 votes in uh, the Senate, uh, where there's 100 senators. There are you know, 51 would make a majority, but 60 percent. That's to accomplish what? That's because the way our founding fathers set up the Senate is that it would be more of a deliberative body. Uh, the House would be more of the people's house where the where have more districts so they're closer to the people and that can be a little bit more reactionary, which is great because you can respond to things. And the Senate is designed to say, okay, let's do a deeper dive. Let's make sure that this is the right legislation for the development and the strength of our country. And you do that by saying any piece of legislation needs to be passed with six feet vote. Um, and so by design, it is to bring in a more variety of views. And when we're in the majority, the views can be all Republican. We've got to understand that if we get a bill that has 90% Republican ideas, but to get the last um, or votes to get it passed, we have to work with Democrats. You don't undermine the bill. That's not a disaster. No, that's not. We're going to take. We're going to take a short break. Uh, we're, we're talking to Matt Dolan, candidate for United States Senate here in Ohio. Uh, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. Don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, the Advocate. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. 
We're talking to Matt Dolan, a U.S. Senate candidate here in Ohio. And Matt, uh, as always, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Nick. I appreciate it. You know, we were just talking before the break about um, essentially bipartisan cooperation in the Senate to get to that 60% passage rate that is necessary. Uh, how do you plan on uh, bringing everyone together, or at least uh, a majority together, to to get legislation passed? It seems like the sides are so divided between Republican and Democrat, uh, never the twain shall meet kind of a thing. How do you plan to uh, attack that? Well, I'm going to continue to do what I've been doing in the uh, state Senate and the House of Representatives before that. Bring my skill set as a lawyer, bringing my knowledge of being involved in several family businesses and recognizing what is in the best interest of our state and in our country and selling that to Republicans and Democrats. Not just not talk. Um, I've been chairman of the budget uh, three times in my, my public sector experience. So Republicans have put me in charge of, of how taxpayers pay, where taxpayer dollars go. Nick, my last budget had Republican, every Republican, and half the Democrats to vote for it. And yet the Ohio Republican Party called it the most conservative budget in Ohio history. So the point is, if you are willing to engage, if you are willing to work hard, you can get legislation passed with some Democratic votes that is true to Republican principles. Because at the end of the day, it's where I started. Our ideas are simply better. And people prosper more when our ideas are put into place. So the idea that if we're going to focus on the 10% of a bill that may not be great, instead of the 90% that's going to make us stronger and more prosperous, we are going to continue to lose as a party. And because we are going to become truly the party of no. We're against everything. And when that happens, Nick, we lose. And when we lose, guess who else loses? Everyone. Look at what Biden's doing to our country, inflation. He's made us energy dependent again, and, and worse, he's strengthening the hand of Russia's economy and China. Uh, you know, the, the, the open borders we talked about, paying people to stay home to work. I mean, it is atrocious what's happening. But we could have prevented all this if we were willing to engage and get things done. And that's what I want to do. It's what I've done. And that's what I can do. You mentioned engagement and perseverance. Uh, what's going on with the Biden administration now? What what things have we seen over this past year, and, and what needs to be reversed to improve things? Well, I'll give you I'll give your audience a a telltale sign when things are getting better. If Bernie Sanders is not complaining, we're in trouble. Bernie Sanders is a socialist, a self admitted socialist, and he is not complaining. That tells you all you need to know about the direction of the country that Biden is taking. He wants us to be more government dependent. Look, one of the reasons you're opening the border is we want more people to come into our country because they're an essential part of our growth and our economy. We need them to come in legally. And when they come in illegally and now you have a Democratic Party that's saying, okay, let's give them all the rights and privileges of a citizen, even though they didn't come in the right way, you are creating dependent class, and dependent class depend on government, and government running our country will destroy our country. So to me, it's the inflation. You know, it's energy independence. 
is our, you know, our tragic withdrawal of Afghanistan, is the projection of weakness. That is what's hurting our country. Telltale sign again. If Bernie mm-hmm. Sanders is quiet, we all should be nervous. Well, the, with the uh, let's assume there's going to be a change in the majority of Senate. We get 60% Republicans uh, this uh, November. Uh, how how will the Senate uh, basically go after the current presidential administration in trying to reverse things to improve things with the economy? And uh, we have to talk about international and global security as well. Yeah. So. Um uh, if the Senate gets the majority and we still have the Democrat in the White House, so there's a number of things the Senate can do. Obviously, one, as I've put out already, is that you put forth Republican ideals and you make the Democrats reject those so that we have the foundation of what we stand for. But in the meantime, you know, I, you, you have to be, make sure that you're, you're relentless in pursuing America's strength around the world. And whenever I see weakness, I would point it out. Um, and so that's, that is, you know, when you're in the minority in terms of national security, you got to point out the facts where we're, we're lacking. And one of the beauties of the Senate that, that our founders set up is the Senate is the body in which you can call in administrative officials and hold their feet to the carpet as to what they're doing. So you need to have hearings with our, with our judiciary. You need to have hearings with our FBI and point out the direction they're taking this country, the investigations they're doing on our own people. Those are the things as a Senate you have the ability to do. Call them in, ask them questions, legitimate questions, and expose the answers to someone realizing this administration is not working for the people. They are, they are trying to create a, uh, a powerful government that will decide every every aspects of our life. So until it's White House, it, it's hard to set the agenda. But we there's a lot we can do if we work together in the Senate to be able to stop the Biden administration, set up the agenda so that when Republicans take over the White House, we are prepared and ready to act and make America stronger again. Good, good, good. Hey, a question about COVID that seems to be dropping down in the news lately uh, because of its improvements and the fact that it seems to be fading away. Uh, At the Senate level, what will we be doing for the next pandemic that inevitably will come around that uh, will avoid the problems we've had with COVID-19? So, excellent question, Nick. First of all, you you don't mandate from the federal level any any, uh, thing on businesses or individuals. So that won't happen on my watch. But you're exactly right. We need to make sure we understand uh, what pandemic preparation we need for the next one. So we are not dependent on China or any of our adversaries for any equipment that we may need to attack this pandemic. A lot of what happened, a lot of the terrible decisions that had to be made were made because we were ill-prepared. Our hospitals weren't ready. They didn't have enough equipment. We didn't have enough equipment for businesses to be able to figure out how to open their, uh, to, to stay open. So we have got to address that. We need to be uh, pandemic prepared. We need to have our manufacturers making our equipment so that on a moment's notice we can, we can up the uh, supply chain immediately 
so we don't have to be disruptive ever again in terms of how people operate, that we know that if the next one comes, we are prepared, we can live with it, we can go on with our lives and keep people healthy and safe. Do you think uh, after the COVID-19 pandemic, after it sort of rolls totally off of the front pages, that uh, the U.S. government can come up with some type of policy or guidelines as to what is the role of the federal government in dealing with public health when there's a pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think we could do that, but the, but the public role is to help keep us uh, safe. And to do that is by providing the tools to the private sector so that they are prepared to deal with it. On the health mm-hmm. side, you got to make sure you constantly stay in touch with our medical community to say, do you have what you need? Um, are, you know, what, what are you thinking? Uh, are you prepared? And on the economic side, y- you say, look, we don't want it to be disrupted. We're not going to do that ever again. So, you know, if, if a pandemic arises, you know, whether separation, whether masking, all those things, we will have hearings on side whether that's the right way to go. But you just need to recognize we can't shut down the economy. Just cannot do that again. So what is it? I don't have the answer for you today, but your question is spot on. What is it that we need to be prepared for so that the private sector continues and our health officials do have what they need to keep us healthy? Very good. Uh, When I was in the military, after something like this would happen, we'd have what's called an after-action report. So hopefully there'll be an after-action report from COVID-19 in our whole experience so we can plan and set out the procedure and the uh, directions to go uh, in dealing with the next pandemic, which inevitably will happen, whether it's one year or 10 years or even 100 years from now. But, uh, but in any event, well, anyway, <clears throat> Matt Dolan, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us tonight. And uh, good luck in your campaign and uh, sound like sound ideas. And uh, good luck to you in uh, the November election as well. Well, thank you, Nick. I appreciate it. Uh, have a great evening. Look forward to being coming yeah. back. Yeah, we'll have you back again. Thank you. That was Matt Dolan. He's a candidate for United States Senate here in the state of Ohio. We're going to take a short break. You'll be coming right back. So don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. And in the next two segments, we're going to be talking about something we want to get back to, and that is education. We're not talking too much about COVID, but to talk about education and traveling, foreign traveling, that is an important thing. And uh, joining us tonight, we have uh, Kristen Stasiowski from Kent State University. Dr. Stasiowski is the Assistant Dean of International Programs and Education Abroad for the College of Arts and Science at Kent State and is also an assistant professor of Italian language and literature in the Department of Modern and Classical Languages at Kent State University. She received her PhD from Yale University in Italian language and literature and has taught Italian language, literature, cinema, history, and culture in both Florence, Italy, and at Kent State University here in Ohio. She recently published a chapter entitled The Divine Divine Comedy, 
for all time, Dante's enduring uh, relevance for the contemporary reader in Italian pop culture, media, product, uh, imageries. Rome, Italy. Okay, that was a mouthful. But let me welcome (laughs) Kristen. Thank you so much for joining us. Such a thrill. How are you? Thank you, you, Nick. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. It is. Uh, It's great to talk about something that doesn't have to do with the the grim realities that we had to experience with COVID over the last two years. But uh, the idea that people are still getting educated, people are still going to college and universities, and people are becoming educated in our culture is an important thing. Um, What is going on with Kent State and its uh, foreign education programs? And give us just a little rundown of what's been happening at Kent over these past decades. Oh, sure. Absolutely. I think that, um, you know, you hear a lot these days about the great resignation. I think instead, when we think in terms of education, of the great enrichment um, you know, clearly, uh, student mobility in terms of studying abroad uh, in any of our international programs was deeply affected by the suspensions and closures and uh, shutdowns and lockdowns because of COVID. But now that the world, at least in some sense, is opening up again, I think that we're seeing a great resurgence of interest in being able to be physically in a different place in the world. Uh, and certainly Kent State has had a long tradition of success with international programs. One of our oldest programs is, of course, our campus in Florence, Italy. Uh, that program has been around in various forms for about 50 years. 2022 is our 50th anniversary, in fact. Uh, and this summer, we're happy to see that applications for the Summer Institute program, which is a four-week uh, program in the month of June, and then another four-week program in the month of July, are over 400 So students, despite the challenges that are presented by travel and despite some of the financial difficulties as a result of COVID, are undeterred in wanting to be able to explore the world. And so enriching themselves through education and enriching themselves in particular through international education, I think is something of a priority for them and is certainly seen as a way for them to leverage their skills and their education and their aspirations professionally so that they can attain all those things that they're really hoping for in their lives. You know, if uh, they do go to Florence, to the Kent State campus, my wife and I had the opportunity to go there as alumni. We had an alumni program. We had several couples come out. And uh, you mentioned something a few moments ago, the fact that the campus, the Kent State University campus in Florence, Italy, I have to emphasize that, has been there for 50 years. And what that means is that we have, among other things, we have staff members and faculty who are Italian. They live there in Italy. They've been with the university for many years. And when someone from Ohio uh, or from Kent State University generally comes out to Florence, uh, it's almost like uh, you're you're being welcomed by family members because you're from the other part of Kent from the <laughs> viewpoint of the people in Florence. So we had a, had a wonderful time. And Kent State's not the only university having programs like this. I think most of the other universities have European programs. But uh, it's sort of, uh, there's a cost involved in having a student go out to Florence or going out to any European educational program. And uh, they have to ask themselves, well, what, what is the educational benefit? How is this going to help them with an employer by, by going out uh, and spending a summer, say, in Florence, Italy, Absolutely, and that's something that 
Um, you know, international programs, especially at Kent, um, though Florence is an important program and one of our longest standing programs, we have programs of any length of time in any part of the world and in any subject area that a student wishes to study. So if it's a question of doing archaeology or field work in biology uh, or religious studies or philosophy, there's any number of programs that a student can do. Uh, and precisely the diversity of locations and subject area is what appeals to our students based on their professional aspirations. Um, there's all kinds of data out there, a lot of it uh, from NAFSA and Open Doors, that suggests that employers are looking for students now more than ever that have some kind of international competency or at least awareness. And that's true even if they don't plan on working abroad or living abroad at any point in their careers. The world is so interconnected and so dynamic now that even staying in Northeast Ohio, as many of our students choose to do, um, becomes a more complex uh, situation to navigate when you've got linguistic diversity and ethnic diversity and racial diversity and religious diversity. So that even something simple like putting together, say, a schedule for someone uh, on a wait staff in a restaurant can be complicated if you're taking into account different religious holidays, for example. And so to be an effective manager in that circumstance is to have had an exposure to the way that different cultures at different times of the year might be uh, operating on an entirely different calendar from the one that, say, a corporate American standpoint might might wish to accept. And so when I'm talking with students, I think it's very easy to demonstrate to them that in any field, whether it's medicine, whether it's law, um, whether it's in um, any type of teaching scenario, um, even if it's dealing with, you know, a part-time thing, like trying to be an emergency medical technician, the way we communicate with each other is d- deeply affected by our cultural context, uh, where we were raised, by whom we were raised, the music we listen to, the films we see, the television shows we're exposed to. And so when you change that fundamentally by getting out of the American context uh, of Ohio, that really is an, an eye-opening experience that then becomes a very concrete benefit for applying to to any job in the future. Before the students go out uh, to Europe for a course, say in the summer, uh, you work with them and, and you sort of lay out what they can expect and they have a lot of questions. But when they come back, I'm, I'm assuming they come back all excited for their <laughs> yes. experience. But what, what are some of the things that really surprise them and they feel very good about experiencing? Well, Nick, you actually happened on something that I think is really important to underline, um, you know, and especially now at our time in which people have returned to really wishing to be in different places and to expose themselves to travel. Just simply moving from point A to point B and changing your geography isn't enough, really, when we're talking about international education. People travel the world all the time, and sometimes by virtue of doing so, without a purposeful or intentional engagement with otherness and with difference, can lead sometimes to becoming even more rigid in one's own beliefs that home is the best place ever. Uh, And certainly home is a wonderful place. Um, But the before and after aspects of an exposure to international education are really the areas where we try to encourage our students to do that deep critical thinking and engagement that can lead them to a kind of cultural humility, if you will, kind of willingness to open their hearts and minds and certainly their ears to the ways in which difference can be something that not only should be tolerated, um, but that should really be appreciated and valued. And so when a student returns from an experience abroad, they're excited to share their stories and their experiences. They're excited in some senses also to add a second major or a minor in in a subject area that they had never dreamt could be enjoyable to them or purposeful in, in attaining their professional goals. 
But what we like to see and what often happens is that they come home with this unique appreciation of the good fortune they have uh, to have the privileges and benefits of what's available to them in the United States. But they also have a sense that it's not only that in the United States you can live a good life and that you can live a productive life and that you can live to appreciate all the variety that there is. So when a student comes home, say, from Florence, as you mentioned, they not only feel that the United States is home, but they also feel like another foreign place that once was so unimaginably different for them that they thought they could never possibly accept it at home as home is now another version of home for them. So they come home to Kent State because they've gone abroad to Florence or to any of our other destinations. It's really beautiful. Well, what a wonderful life's experience. We're talking to Dr. Kristen Stasiowski, the Assistant Dean for International Programs at Kent State University, talking about getting students out there to Europe, among other places, uh, to experience something more than, than just living in our own backyard. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back with uh, Kristen to talk more about foreign travel and, and why it's so important to take advantage of these opportunities if you have the opportunity made available to you. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Cleveland, Nick Phillips with you with our final segment of The Advocate for tonight. We're talking to Kristen Stasiowski from Kent State University. She is the Assistant Dean for International Programs, and we're talking about the opportunities of going to Europe, specifically Florence, Italy, and how useful that is to the future life and working career of a Kent State student, or any college student for that matter. Uh, Kristen, thank you again for joining us tonight. Thank you, Nick. Pleasure to be here. Well, uh, you know, we, we've talked for years. I've known you for quite some time. The whole idea of having an experience that gets you out of this country to meet people who are living in other cultures, um, students come back surprised that these are really nice people many times. You can get along with people from different societies, different cultures. Um, and that sort of fits into the fact that your program is in the College of Arts and Science at Kent State University and is part of a, f a fundamental liberal arts education that people should get. You know, when we talk about people going to university and, and getting an education, say, in accounting or business or music, uh, where does this cultural thing come in and, and how does that fit into what a liberal arts education is? And, we're certainly not talking about turning everybody into communists, which some people think <laughs> liberal arts is all about, but it sort of enhances and enriches the experience of life, I think, my opinion. Yes. yes, I think so, too, and I'm so glad you asked that question. You know, there's there's been a lot of talk about higher education in the United States lately, and certainly about international education, and oftentimes those two things are not seen as very well connected, that international education is a kind of a la carte separate aspect of what students can do when they're at a university. They can do leadership training. They can have experiences in student affairs and residential life. They can join a or student organization or participate in a team sport somehow. And, and then they can also study abroad. And so all of these things are in some sense side dishes to what they could otherwise do within their degree program. 
I don't take that view of international education. I think that like the very heart of what a liberal arts education is meant to be at a university, an education that prepares a student to be able to think critically, a student to be able to engage with people of different cultures, to be able to say, for example, hold two contrary ideas in their mind at the same time and be able to navigate a world in which two things that are opposite uh, can somehow be reconciled even. I think that those aspects of a liberal arts education can best be found through an international experience because students are placed in a new context in which they have to then question their assumptions. and They have to be, in some sense, reflective and self-critical about the way that they think about their thinking. Um, well, you know, and I, being a, a medieval Italian scholar, uh, you know, students mm-hmm. assume that I would never have a job in my life. And after all, who would read medieval Italian poetry after all? And yet I don't even see the academic aspect of my work and research and teaching as contradictory to, to international education. I'm frequently on campus talking to students about the way that Dante and the Divine Comedy, for example, has uh, written famously the words that are uttered uh, by the mouth of Ulysses in the Inferno when he says, consider your origins. You are not meant to live as brutes, but to pursue virtue and knowledge. I mean, nothing sounds more liberal artsy than that, you know, sends parents running for the hills saying, go get a business degree. And yet I comment that that word to consider is really made up of two words, etymologically speaking. One is con, with, and the other is cedar, which means the stars. The idea of consideration in Dante's day was to thought of was thought of as a way of returning the mind to the stars by asking it to think more highly about things. And I think if we think about higher education, using the faculties of one's mind in order to not just reach for the stars, but to be amongst the stars through processes of thinking, through elevating our, our discourse and through elevating our perspective, I think that's the real key. And I think that there's nothing better at helping us to gain a new perspective than changing our contexts and changing our circumstances. And so that's something that immediately when you cross a physical border, like studying abroad, helps you to really break down internal barriers and borders and boundaries inside of ourselves. So it really is on the very fault line of a liberal arts education, the very idea of traveling abroad. You know, using the term enlightenment uh, is a personal thing that as we go through life, we're enlightened by a lot of things as we discover things. Uh, you mentioned the term during the last segment, cultural humility. Uh, I, I can sort of guess what that means, but is that a term of art with special meaning? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that, too. Uh, believe it or not, that was a term for, first coined in the late 90s by healthcare professionals. Um, and they at that time thought of it as a lifelong process of self-reflection and self-critique, whereby an individual not only learns about another person's culture, but that starts with an examination of one's own beliefs and cultural identities. And I find it fascinating that it was really healthcare professionals who started to think about that, because in dealing with patient interactions, one has to think about things like, does the way that the patient in your office expresses his or her pain Um, is that relative to culture? Might someone defer to you differently if in their culture they think of a physician as a figure of authority versus as someone who is a partner in a a sense? And so approaching people with humility um, is, is a great beginning way to establish a new relationship. And that's something, too, that really is um, very central to what I study. Uh, humility in, in Italian is related to the word for uomo, which is the word for man. 
um, that, you know, we're, we're made of the earth and that get, uh, lowering oneself is a way in which ultimately one can become exalted. Uh, Dante famously in the Paradiso, for example, in a prayer to the Virgin Mother, claims that she is both humble and exalted. And so there is a way that the hierarchies of life can be inverted. Uh, St. Augustine in his Confessions was famous for saying that, you know, if you want to raise yourself up, you should begin by lowering yourself down. Heck, you too said it. If you want to learn, you know, kiss the sky, you better learn how to kneel. And so the idea of allowing yourself a certain level of openness toward others where you're really asking more of what would be important for them to express to you and you're allowing yourself to question your own beliefs allows both both parties to come together to try and find a middle ground. Mm-hmm. I think that's important, well, especially today in well, terms of civil discourse. Yes. Well, well, it is. Well, yeah, political discourse nowadays is so uh, divided where you just take one position and you wrap yourself in the bubble of that particular ideology and you don't see the other side whether you're far left or far right Mm -hmm, uh, they're mm -hmm. separated and and we you you mentioned something earlier that uh, how how you can maintain an understanding of both sides and then be able to still be open to consider both sides and maybe come up with a third view toward toward a a particular issue but uh, I would assume that you know American students who think they're really great, they go in one of these foreign exchange programs or foreign education programs and come back with a cultural humility knowing that, gee, they're they're not the only smartest people in the world. There's some other people out there who aren't too shabby either. Absolutely. And, you know, one important example is also in terms of language. Um, You know, there, there might be a tendency for someone who, um, who's not been exposed to other languages, to hear other languages spoken in the United States, and to say, well, you know, you should speak English because we're here and we speak English, or to assume that that other person might not be smart or educated because they're not speaking English. But as soon as a student who can't speak another language is in a foreign context, and most of our programs allow you to, without any other language other than English, matriculate into programs abroad, uh, when they're in that context in which they don't speak the, the nation's language, uh, and all of a sudden they're made to feel like they're lesser than or that people are not giving them their due attention or respecting the learning and knowledge and experience that they have, it fundamentally changes then when they come back to the United States and they see someone who's in a difficult language context. And it it then allows them to say, well, you know, I learned what it felt like to be in a minority. I I learned what it felt like to be judged on face value. And therefore, I'm going to make a change in the way that I, from this point forward, uh, think about dealing with otherness in my own country. And and just that little pause that it gives a student before they engage with someone else, that's that's a huge moment. And after all, with the amount of work there is to be done in so many ways, uh, in so many different countries and in so many sectors, whether it's with climate change or whether it's with health care or whether it's in social justice or anything in between, the collaborations that have to take place means that we really can't avoid one another. And so, right, unfortunately, right. you know, the Internet is working against us this way. The Internet encourages opinions. Oh, that's a subject for a whole other, whole other interview. But uh, we're, out of, we're out of time. We're out of time, Kristen. But I'd like to thank Dr. Kristen Stasiowski from Kent State University, uh, the Assistant Dean for International Programs, encouraging people to get out there and, and really take advantage of these opportunities. But, uh, Kristen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Nick. Thanks again. 
My pleasure. And thank you for listening. We'll be back again next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, have a great, healthy, and safe week. Good night. And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset, sat and drank my fresh mint tea, with nothing to do until morning, and only my mind accompanied. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.